You may ask, how did this tradition get started? I'll tell you. I don't know. But it's a tradition. And because of our traditions, every one of us knows who he is and what God expects him to do. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Let's Talk Torah. I am Rabbi T. Jacobson with NRM Streamcast, and we'll spend our time talking Torah, learning stuff, and having fun while we learn. You can always send your questions and comments to our mailbag at letstalktorah at gmail.com, and I will answer as many as I can. You know, if you missed my last show, you got to immediately go back. We had somebody on with a journey unbelievable, amazing, amazing. I mean, the world should talk about him and learn from, uh, his name was Moshe Gerst, really, really amazing. Just somebody who uh, looked at where life was and where he wanted to go, and he just changed. He made a, forget 180, I mean, as, yeah, 180, as much as you can turn, really, really fantastic. But we have the next segment here to talk about this week's Torah portion with some, some really interesting things that I saw this week. That, uh, that are really worth thinking about. They're really something um, important. So, um, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start you with a question, and we're going we're gonna to hopefully answer that question as the show goes on. The question is as follows. Um, what does the Torah feel about fighting for our rights? Does a person have a right? I mean, even physical. Do we have a right, according to the Torah, to fight for our rights? Or as people have said historically, uh, that uh, we just have to be meek and be stepped on and trod upon. And, and is that how we're supposed to live our life? Are we supposed to stand tall and proud? What's it supposed to be? And, and the question is really much more complicated than you imagine. But let's uh, take apart this week's story portion and see what happens. So we're going we're gonna, to you know, go through the beginning a little faster and we're going we're gonna to get into it. First of all, you need to know. Um, it's not in this week's Torah portion, but there's Rebbeinu B'chayi that talks about why are kosher animals kosher? And I don't mean because they have split hooves and chew their cud. That's the sign that God put into them. But for the most part, kosher food is farm animals. Cows, sheep, goats, chickens, right? Turkey. Why did God decide that that should be the kosher meat? What's wrong with lion meat? What's wrong with um, the pig is a separate um, conversation, so we're not going to really go there, even though it probably gets answered the same way. Um, what decides what becomes a kosher animal? And with birds, by the way, it works even better. And the answer is that there's the chasers and the people being chased. And it says God always protects the people being chased. So farm animals are generally hunted by other animals. So your wolves and your, or if you depend on where you live, if it's lions or, or whatever animals you want to worry about that the farmer has to worry about, it's those cows and sheep. They're the ones that are chased. So God says, I love the ones being chased. So therefore, um, those become the kosher animals because you are what you eat. So if you eat uh, sheep, or goats, or cows, you will probably intrinsically be a kinder, gentler person. Well, if you're going to eat 
animals that are the attacking animals, then that's what you'll become. Now, by the way, by birds, the Torah doesn't get into it so much. The Torah just gives a list of kosher birds. But in the Talmud, when it talks about those kosher birds, one of the signs of a non-kosher bird is an attacking bird, an eagle, of, uh, of the, that maybe a vulture, I say a falcon. Attacking birds. So now, according to that, it would sound like right off the cuff that you're not supposed to fight for your rights. That is what it sounds like. However, as I told you, this is not a simple question. But let's take it for something else we see at the beginning of the Torah portion. And that is that Jacob has come back from Haran. He has his um, 11, soon to be 12 children with him. And he gets ready to meet his brother Esav, Esau. And he prepares to meet him because Esav is coming with an army. He has 400 men or 400 generals, whatever it is. And he prepares. He sends him presents. You could call that bribes. He prays to God. And it says he prepares for war. And we know, by the way, that Jacob is a very, very strong person. First of all, for the Medrash, we also find it with the rock back in last week's Torah portion that he lifts off, even though it usually took a group of people to roll it off. He himself took it off. He's a very, very strong person. And it says he's preparing for war. The only thing is, the war preparation is to split up the camp. So if they're attacked in one area, they'll have somewhere else to run to. So again... Sounds like in the Torah portion that you're, that the Torah would prefer you to be um, passive, right? Not to be the attacker, not to be the aggressor, but to be passive. Again, seems like a pretty good proof. Until we get to the the tragedy that takes place in Jacob's family and the response, I guess we'll say first from Jacob and from his children. And uh, I guess the conversation that happened. So let's let's get into the story. So what happens? So Jacob is done with Asa. Well, if we have time later, we'll talk about what happened over there with that confrontation. And they they get to an area called Shrem. Shrem is one of these areas. It's Nablus, uh, where many many tragedies have happened to the Jewish people in Nablus. The the ten tribes split off from the tribe of Judah and Benjamin. Um, Joseph is sold by Nablus. And we have the story with Dina. Dina is Jacob's daughter. Um, whether there were other girls born with the tribes is debatable in the Talmud, but in the Torah, we only have a mention of one daughter. And her name is Dina. She is Leah's child. She goes out. They move out to this area. They buy a field outside of Shechem. She goes to check out the area. Shrem is the prince. His father's name is Hamar. My class was talking about the name because the name means donkey, which is a pretty interesting name to have. And but he was king. The and his son is Shrem. The city is named after his son, so you can clearly see what the father feels about his son. And this son sees Dina. He's a pretty girl, and kidnaps her and rapes her. But he loves her. The verse says. And he tells his father, I want to marry her, but we're going to have to get permission from the father. So father and son go, and they tell the father, you know, I, by the way, have your daughter living with me already at home. I want your blessing. I want your permission. I want to be able to marry your daughter. Um, 
we'll, we'll mix our family, your family, we'll become one big nation together. And Jacob is quiet. In the meanwhile, two of Jacob's children, the second and third to oldest, and they're all of 11 and 12 years old at the time, one is Simon or Shimon and one is Levi. So they tell um, this Shem and Hamar, you know, we got a problem. We can't just go marry you um, because you are not circumcised. And in our family, if you're not circumcised, we don't even talk to you. But if you get circumcised, then there's what to talk about. We can do business. We'll, uh, we can marry each other. There's what to talk about. Okay. So Shem is the pride and joy of his father of Hamar. And pretty much whatever Shem wants goes. So they go to the townspeople and they say, come on, these people are here. You see, they're very wealthy. They just want us to get circumcised. We'll circumcise and, and we'll join up with them and we'll take all their money and we'll take their daughters. And in case you need someone for your daughter, you will use one of their sons for a husband. We'll just integrate and it'll all be good. And since... Um, I guess what Hamar and Shechem want is what happens. So the city, all the men circumcise, which is not such a pleasant or safe thing to do for uh, all these adults. Okay. So um, like we found um, when Abraham gets circumcised, on the third day of circumcision, especially for an adult, there's a lot of pain. Um, there's concern of infection, and people are going to usually be weaker. On that day, Shimon and Levi come to town, and they say, we are here to take our sister. And the townsfolk said, we don't think so. And Shimon and Levi said, well, we do think so. And Shimon and Levi go ahead, and they wipe out the entire town. They kill everybody in town. They go to the palace, or whatever a palace looked like in those days. They kill Shem and Hamar, and they return home with their sister, Dina. A lot of lessons to be learned, um, and we'll try to get through some of them. And they come home to their father, Jacob. So Jacob says, like, what are you guys doing? Don't you understand that the, the neighboring uh, nations are going to think uh, we're going to war with everybody? Uh, we're going to war. We're looking to conquer. And we're, how many people are we already? I have 11 kids, and you're, you're little. Like, we're not in a position to start conquering. And Shimon and Levi say a fascinating answer. They say, Are you going to treat our sister like a, like, a, like a whore, like a harlot, like a, like a prostitute? Can we allow such a thing for our sister? And that is the end of the conversation. The Medrash says that there were nations that came to fight, and Jacob uh, went to war, and he protected his kids. Um... And we don't really hear about this story again till Jacob's deathbed, where then he uh, lays into Shimon and Levi on his true feelings. So now, now we've, uh, we have a full turn on the original question. That here Shimon and Levi said that we cannot be meek. We cannot allow someone to take advantage of our sister. We will not allow someone to take advantage of our sister. And we'll kill a whole city over it. So there's a lot of questions involved over here, and we're going to try to get through as many as we could. But I really want to first focus on the, on the question that I asked you. And the question was, 
you know, what does the Torah feel about fighting for your rights? So I, uh, I found at least three, actually, somebody told me a fourth. So I'm sure it's, uh, it's, in, it's in multiple places of where Shimon and Levi right or wrong. Because even Jacob's response of what are the neighboring uh, nations going to say about us doesn't say what you did was wrong. It just says you're not thinking, right? Like, wh- what were you thinking? Don't you realize you're, you're asking a bunch of uh, uh, warring tribes to go to war with us? But th- it doesn't mean that Shimon and Levi were wrong for what they did. So what gives? So I have a list. We'll go in order of age just to be fair. Uh, there was a commentary by the name of the Abar Benel. The Abar Benel lived in the late 1400s. He was, uh, I guess, the monetary advisor to the king of Spain, and he was there during the expulsion. So he saw a lot of Jewish suffering. So he says, it's probably not an exact quote, but pretty much he says like this, in cases of disgrace, death, and honor is better than life, of humiliation, right? Now, it's better to die honorably than to live a life of humiliation. In other words, the brothers are making a statement that, that our daughter was kidnapped, that our sister, I'm sorry, was kidnapped and raped, and we're going to just stand by and say nothing? That embarrassment, that humiliation, we can't handle. Better we should be dead. We'll go to war with the city. We die, we die. It doesn't matter. But we cannot allow, we cannot stand tall. We can't handle such a thing. That's one commentary. There's the Arachayim. Um, I think he lived about 150, 180 years ago. So he says like this, right? There is greater danger if a single despicable person can rule over the daughter of Jacob. And he says, we won't be able to survive the exile. Okay, in the end, Jacob curses their anger, right? So, in other words, what he's saying is that if we allow, and we'll see something similar to, from Samson for Hirsch, to, to allow this one despicable person to take advantage of Jacob and say, I can do whatever I want with your, with your girls, such a thing, we would not be able to survive in exile. Which is interesting, by the way, if you think about it. Um, as much as we may have suffered in exile, but for the most part, um, we weren't in a position, to my knowledge, that our women were free for the taking. I don't believe so. I don't believe the girls were, were free. That was something that was never allowed to happen. It's true. Exile's exile, right? We're, we're subjugated, right? We, we, don't, we had to live in ghettos. Uh, life was not exactly what we may have wanted it to be. But at the same time, the concept that uh, they could just rape and pillage, I mean, they, there were times they did, right? There were pogroms. I'm not saying it never happened. But, um, but overall, during the exile, it was not allowed to take place because that was something that, that any normal person would not allow to take place. And there's one more, and that is Rassam Shafal Hirsch. What does he say? He says they only do that now again. Samuel Fuller Hirsch was in Germany. He was in the 1850s. Um, he, um, he saw a lot of things happening. And he said that they only do this because we're Jews, right? 
In other words, even though he says that when we talk about Jewish strength, right, that we had a verse in, uh, in last week's Torah portion that Isaac says that, I'm sorry, it's two weeks ago, that the voice is the voice of Jacob and the hands are the hands of Esau, meaning Esau's strength is with weapons, with fighting. Jacob's strength is through our prayer. Right? But he says, right, our strength, we're supposed to know our strength all comes through spirituality. But by the way, it's not natural. Naturally, a person feels his strength comes through fighting. Right? But in a case where um, we, we, we need to rely on our strength, then we do fight. So now you see clearly that we have many commentaries explaining that when it comes to standing up for yourself, the Torah clearly says Shimon and Levi were allowed to stand up for the, for the spirituality of the Jewish people. So again, I ask, you can't stand up for yourself, or you don't stand up for yourself. And I'm going to tell you, I'm going to not go off topic, I'm going to move on a little bit in, into the story, and then I'm going to come back. And I think that will help us recognize when... The Torah wants us to fight for our rights when the Torah wants us to stand up and when we're supposed to stand down. Because clearly Jacob is not happy. Because in a couple weeks from now, when we're going to talk about Jacob blessing his children, so, um, so Shimon and Levi, Simon and Levi, um, he yells at them. He curses them out. And he says, your anger is cursed. That anger is bad. I will spread you out amongst Jacob. Uh, the commentaries explain that there was like a hidden blessing here. Shimon and Levi have a have have an attribute which is fantastic, and that is for for the spirituality of the Jewish people, they will fight, and they will put themselves in danger of getting killed. They will allow themselves to be killed. They will kill others to make sure that the spirituality of Jacob is strong. They're fighting. Not for their physical lives, they're fighting for the Jewish um, spirit, the spirituality, not the being Jewish. Being Jewish means being able to study Torah, being able to serve God. They will fight for that. So it says that the Levites were busy traveling, collecting the tithes, because the farmer is supposed to give 10% to the Levite. The Levite would come to the farmer's house and say, I'm here to collect um, your, the 10%. And then the farmer, who is generally um, not educated, would have his whole list up on the fridge of all his questions. Or if the Levite noticed that there were things not being done properly, it was the Levite's job to teach the farmer what is appropriate, what's the law here, what's the law over here, how do you do this, is this permissible, is that permissible, what has he fixed over here, let me fix up your kitchen, let me fix up this. That was the Levite's job. So the Levite, by traveling would make sure the farmer was, uh, was, was keeping Torah properly. What was Shimon's job? Shimon's job, he was spread out to be the teachers. Right? Who is going to teach the children? So the tribe of Simon, of Shimon, they spread out. They were teachers all over the land of Israel. And their job was to educate children, Jewish children, what the Torah wants, what the Torah says, what God wants. So who better to be the educators but the people who care the most, the deepest, that the, the spirituality of the Jewish people is most important to them because they will kill over it. 
Those are the people that you want to be the teachers. So it comes out like this. It comes out that there are times where, yeah, where we have to stand up and not allow ourselves to be stepped on. But when? He kidnapped Dina. He kidnapped Jacob's daughter. He raped her. Yeah, that is something that affects the spirituality of the Jewish people so greatly that they'll kill for. Not to just say, well, I'm Jewish, so therefore, and you looked at me funny, and therefore I have to go kill you. That's ridiculous. Especially in exile. That's not what God wants. That we have a numerous place in the Talmud where the best way for the Jewish people to survive in the exile is to lie low, is not to stand out and, uh, and stand up for our rights. That's not what exile is all about. However, when someone is coming to fight the Jewish people as far as spirituality, we're supposed to fight. And that, by the way, brings us to the upcoming holiday, the holiday of Hanukkah, which, um, if I'm here next week, I'm still not sure if I'm going where or not, then if, if I'm not here next week, then in two weeks we'll talk about it. But that's really the story of, the, of Hanukkah, the, the Hanukkah miracle. There's two parts to the miracle of Hanukkah. Everybody knows about the lights. Everybody knows about the one jar of oil. I hope everybody knows. The one jar of oil that lasted for eight days. But there's another miracle, a bigger miracle. I hate to say bigger, like what's the difference to God? And that is that the Greeks had taken over Israel, and they didn't take it over through war. They just marched in. They beat the Persians. So uh, we, were, we were subservient to the Persians. So now the Greeks win. So we're, okay, so the Greeks take over. And the Greeks brought their culture to Israel. And all they wanted was that everybody should be like them. Be Greek like me. That's all they wanted. You be Greek. I'll be Greek. Everybody's happy. You do my idols. You do my worshiping. You do my Olympics. You show that the body is the altar and that's the most important. Great. We're all in business. But the Jewish people, not all, many liked the idea of being Greek. They were called Hellenists. But there were those... Jews that stuck to their guns and said, we're going to be religious, we're going to serve God. And that the Greeks couldn't handle because serving God means you're saying that they got it all wrong. And that they didn't like. So there was a lot of, uh, a lot of um, I guess, more than suffering. They, they, they went after those Jews that were religious. They burned them in caves. The Jews spread out. They left the temple. They found the hamlets and other places to hang out in. But eventually... The only way to stop the Greeks from completely crushing the Jewish religion was to go to war over it. So again, when you're starting up with our spirituality, that's when the Torah says fight. But when you're not starting up with my spirituality, even if you're starting up with me physically, for example, the Purim story where the... Um, where Haman and the and and that the Persian Empire was looking to kill the Jewish people, we don't find in the story that we were taking up arms. Yes, there was a war for one day. It was only a war to protect ourselves, not to go fight. That you see through the story, it was it was prayer, that is what we turned to. And as we we talk about the miracle of of Hanukkah that we won the war, that we chased the Greeks out, or at least chased them out enough that we were, then, we were now in control of our own destiny. We could be religious because we chose to. That's Hanukkah. So we, part, we also were, 
I would almost say mainly, if you look in the prayers, the the celebration of Hanukkah is that we won the war and we were allowed to be religious. We were allowed our religious freedom, if you like to say here in America. That is what Hanukkah was all about. That's what Shimon and Levi did when they went to save their sister. And, uh, and that's where the Torah says, and all these commentaries that I mentioned, that's the fighting they're referring to. Yeah, you can stand up for your rights so that you can remain Jewish. Ah, oh, my music is coming. I even think it's coming a little bit early. Um, by the way, as a side point to think about, um, why they kill everybody? So one of the simple answers how they could kill everybody, Shimon and Levi could kill, because when they went to take their sister, who was kidnapped, they said, you can't have her back. So that, of course, you can fight to take care of your sister. But in any case, um, I got my point across, I hope. I hope you uh, got the answer. I hope you think about it. You know, uh, the music's playing, though. So as always, we say, I hope you enjoyed it short and sweet. Thank you to one of our sponsor listeners. You know, I can't do it without you. Thank you to one of the production team. We have David and Kelsey in the back. I hope I've left you some food for thought. Until next time, I'm Rabbi T. Jacobson. You've been listening to Let's Talk Torah and I have a streamcast. Until next week, don't forget to think about it.